0: Well, this morning, we are blessed to have a guest, a friend, one who many of you know, but a number don't. And so I'd like to tell you a little bit about them. I still remember the first time that they came to visit our church as he had just graduated from seminary and was our youth minister for six and a half years. And uh, so God has really grown their family from uh, no kids to five. And I don't even know all of their names. So you can become his Facebook friend, and I think Leanne will tell you all about them. But he is the pastor of Tannum Bible Church over in Yakima. And uh, he has come to open the Word of God with us. And I hope that they'll stick around for our food and fellowship time, which when he left to take a senior pastor over there, he told me the one thing that he missed about our church is that time after our worship service when we can have food and fellowship. So we're grateful for him, his ministry. I know he's touched a lot of lives, especially those that are no longer youth, but they're young Men and women. So we're glad that you have uh, been able to come back. His parents are here in the congregation, as well as his brother and sister. If you are unfamiliar with the Barbalitos family, Marjorie is one of our deaconesses, and we're so grateful for all that is done. So,
1: James? Thank you, Pastor Joe. Whoa, there I am. It is indeed a privilege to be back worshiping together with you um, at Living Hope Bible Church. In fact, Joe uh, just asked me as we were sitting down, how does it feel to be back? And I said, uh, like I never left. I see f- uh, people and faces, and in fact, I, I was, remembered, uh, I was rem- reminded about a story where I, I just barely moved to Yakima, and we were getting used to, you know, to the new church, and I remember answering the phones, and for the first two weeks, I had a difficult time. Um, answering the phone properly because I just pick up the phone and say, Living Hill Bible Church, this is James. And a couple times people are, oh, I, I was looking for a tandem pioneer church. And I was like, oh, that, that this is the right place. And um, so it took it took me a little bit to get out of that habit. Um, but we still think of you often. You are in our hearts. Um, you were in our, uh, a wonderful stage in our life as newlyweds and building a family. And I, um, you know, Joe took me under his wing and discipled me and showed me what it means to be a, a minister who uh, loves his, loves God's word, loves uh, the people uh, in the church. And so I will always be grateful for him. Um, but as uh, Joe mentioned, we've added a few additions since uh, we left. Now I have. Uh, four daughters with a son in the middle, so you know how to pray for me. But we are happy in Yakima, and our church there extends their warm greetings um, to you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as like-minded believers um, who love the Lord and who love you as well. Well, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3 as we continue our worship this morning. I've entitled this message, Building Blocks of Discipleship, because in our text, Paul outlines some key biblical principles and elements of not only growing in the maturity of your faith, but what successful and biblical discipleship looks like. Your goal as a follower of Christ should be to constantly be maturing in your faith. The term mature does not mean perfection. Perfection but rather reflects quality of something that is established and developed or advanced. If you've been a believer for some time, or even a little time, you've likely discovered that maturity of faith does not happen overnight. It's just like anything else. It takes time. However, it doesn't simply just happen with time either. Yes, time is involved, but it is more than that. It is time plus the right discipline and ingredients and conditions that will bring about the proper maturity. I mean, I suppose you can think about it from a physical perspective of, of things in life, such as wine or, or cheese or this food I remember learning about when I first came, called something called the thousand-year-old egg. I remember being at Pastor Joe's and somebody's like, this is a thousand-year-old egg. And I was like, you know, I've tried a lot of different things at these potlucks. I don't know about this thing. But with things like that, wine and, and cheese and the thousand-year-old egg, age is necessary to get them to be where they need to be, but it's not age alone that will mature them properly. If you just left grape juice out on your counter... It's not going to mature into wine or at least something that would be palatable as wine. I'm not a wine drinker, but I understand the process of it. If you just left cheese curds out or milk to mold, well, it's not going to mature into a fine cheese. If you just let eggs sit out on your counter for a few weeks' time, they're not going to mature into 1,000-year-old eggs. They're going to spoil. The opposite of maturity would happen. But with the right ingredients and the right conditions and discipline, given enough time, those things mature properly. I'm not saying, by the way, don't don't send me thousand-year-old eggs for like Christmas and things. But you understand that there's a process involved. They must be seasoned. The right things need to be put into place, the right temperature and conditions. But then if done properly with the right ingredients and discipline and patience, they mature properly. And the same is true with your spiritual maturity. Being a believer for a long time will not make you a spiritually mature believer. It does not come naturally. Yes, as a Christian you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will bear fruit through you. But the amount of spiritual growth that you have and the maturity and the maturing process won't just come by being a believer for a long time. It takes proper discipline and conditions and ingredients, if you will, that will mature you properly. It's these truths that Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 3. Just to give you some context, because we're jumping into the middle of a a book that you haven't been studying. In in Philippians chapter 3, Paul has just given them, the, the, the church of Philippi, this detailed resume of his life before Christ. And why, in comparison to all religious leaders, he was the best of the best, as far as the Jews were concerned. He came from a noble tribal line, he'd studied under a famous teachers, he was a righteous man in the eyes of the people. By earthly standards, he had made it with God by all aspects, but when he met Christ, he found that trusting in those things, those earthly accomplishments, was worthless when it came to spiritual life and maturity. When he met Christ, he found that the only thing worth knowing was Christ, and the only thing worth living for was becoming like him. Paul's chief aim in life was Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness in the way he loved others, Christ-likeness in his thought life, Christ-likeness in the type of man he was. So this is the context of which he is writing, and so look down, if you will, to Philippians Chapter 3, we'll back up and we'll begin our reading in verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. If you recall, it was Paul along with Silas and Luke who founded the church in Philippi, whom God used to establish the church. If you remember, they're on their missionary journey and they're making their way to Macedonia after Paul received the Macedonian call and they they go to Philippi and they typically would go to a synagogue first but there was no synagogue there but they heard that there was some women who liked to, to pray on the Sabbath on the outskirts of town by the riverside and so they went there and they find this group and they share the gospel and a woman named Lydia believed and is saved. Soon after this Paul and Silas go into town and they're sharing the gospel but they're unjustly beaten and thrown in prison for doing so. And while they're in prison, there's an earthquake. And this earthquake results in their their chains being loose and the doors of the prison being opened so they could easily escape. I mean, I suppose if, if anybody could argue that this is God releasing them from prison, you could make it, but they don't escape. They remain there, and the Philippian jailer comes running in, assuming that they would have escaped, and according to Roman law, that would have cost him his life and so he's about to kill himself, and they, they stop him, and they say, don't, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. And seeing this difference within these men, knowing what it could have cost him, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You're different than me. You're different than I am. And so they preach the gospel to him, and he believes in not only him, but his whole household. All this is recorded in Acts 16, So from here, this is this group of Philippians. This is where the church was established and and the church continues to grow. And so it is this group of believers that Paul is now writing to. They knew Paul. He was their spiritual father, as it were, and he affirms to them what his aim in life is and conveys that the same must be true for each of them. No matter what their occupation or stage in life is, their aim is spiritual maturity or should be. Knowing Christ, loving Christ, becoming like Christ. So how is this accomplished? Well, as we see, one of the things that Paul emphasizes is discipleship, discipling one another. Discipleship is one of the primary mechanisms mechanisms that God has designed to use to mature you in your faith and in your walk with God. And it's an example that Christ himself exemplified. He took others around and he poured his life into them and discipled them and so that they would do the same for others, to become like him. And this notion of discipleship is a process which transcends culture and language and time, and it should resonate in any church, in every country, in any language, and at any time. <clears throat> Yet the concept of discipleship and seeking spiritual growth is often one of the most common areas where churches struggle. What does biblical and effective discipleship look like? And how is it accomplished? Well, Paul gives us some important instruction here about this. An effective discipleship first begins with the right attitude that you as a believer have before the Lord and your desire. And it is from this right attitude and action that springs forth discipleship. Paul describes them for us. These are necessary ingredients and conditions so that you will mature properly. These are the conditions and the the ingredients, if you will, to mature properly in the Lord and so that you can help others do the same. So as we look at this text together, Paul provides us five facets of biblical discipleship so that you will mature in your faith and be equipped to help others grow in Christ as well. Five facets of biblical discipleship so that you will mature in your faith and be equipped to help others mature in their faith as well. And the first one we see is this, mature thinking. Mature thinking. Paul writes in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, My aim in all aspects of my life is to know Christ and to live for him and to be like him, to exalt him in everything. And let those of you who are mature in your faith also think this way. This term mature, it can be translated perfect or complete. In fact, some of your translations might say, Let those of you who are perfect think this way. But he's not talking about perfection, he's referring to maturity. I mean, it doesn't literally mean those of you who are perfect must think this way because in verse 12, Paul himself just said, not that I have already obtained it or that I myself am perfect. So then if that was the case, if he was meaning perfection here, he'd be excluding himself. He would say, let those of you who are perfect think this way. I mean, I've just said I'm not perfect, so it doesn't apply to me. That doesn't make any sense. What he's meaning is those who are mature in their walk must think this way. And what is it? That their aim in life is about Christ and living for him. Loving them with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then taking that desires, taking those desires seriously. So you might be thinking, though, okay, well, how do I know if I'm a mature believer? I mean, is he speaking to me? Let those who are mature think this way. Am I a mature believer? Well, what do you need to do to be mature? How do you know it needs? How do you know what it takes to do so well? Paul describes this. Paul says, mature believers make Christ the center of everything they do. Christ is the center of your marriage. Christ is the center of your parenting. Christ is the center of why you work and how you work at your job Monday through Friday or whenever you work. Christ is the center of why you love your neighbor and how you teach your grandkids. How you conduct yourself in society. That's what a mature believer does. Mature believers are those who seek to make Christ the center and the purpose of all they do for his glory. The immature, to the immature, this seems very boring, right? seems very daunting. This wet blanket, oh, all you, I mean, I I know I go to church and I love the Lord, but can I just go on vacation and, and, or, you know, I just want to have some funds and have some buddies over for the ball game or just hang out with the gals and it doesn't always have to be a church service. Well, that's not what making Christ the center of everything is. That's immature thinking. Yes, we as believers can have fun and have friends over for the ball game and have ladies time and go on vacation, but it's about Christ, and there's joy and fulfillment in that when we take his command seriously. The mature believer understands that it's about Christ and there's joy in it. It's the immaturity that makes it seem like thinking of Christ and doing things his way is daunting or boring, and yet we all understand we've all struggled with that, and that's the process. Those who are mature understand what life is like without Christ. And then the more Christ is involved in your life, the more joy, the more fulfillment that there is. This is what Paul came to the conclusion. He had done a lot of things. His resume was the best of the best. And he has said, forgetting what lies behind now, all that stuff that was without Christ, that's done. Done. Now I'm straining forward every day, one day at a time, towards the prize of the upward call of God through Christ Jesus. And if you are mature, you will think this way also. That's what he's saying. Spiritual maturity and then future discipleship rests in mature thinking. It happens with time as a believer, but it doesn't happen by time alone. It's accomplished with purposeful thinking. If I were to go around during the fellowship time and ask you, are you a mature believer, what are you going to say? Be a little awkward. If I say, do you desire to be a mature believer, that's less awkward of a question. Most of you would say, well, sure I do. But then if I were to ask, okay, so then what are you doing to become a mature believer? Then there's that awkward question again. And you're thinking, James, just don't ask me any questions after the service. I've often spoken with students as a youth pastor, even as a pastor now, and, and, and people tell me about all their plans. They don't even have to be college students. They can be adults. And they tell me all these plans about what they desire, that they want to get a job and, and career. Um, some of them want to get married. Sometimes when I'm speaking to, you know, married couples, they, they want to get a better house or they want to retire with, with enough comfort. But oftentimes when I ask them about that, they, they're doing nothing in their lives to accomplish these goals. Yes, they desire them. They want to do all these things. But when I ask, okay, well, so what are you doing to accomplish them? Oftentimes it's like, well, very little. Or in fact, what they're doing is counterproductive. They're they're doing the opposite of what will accomplish their goals. Bad use of time, bad spending. And unfortunately, many believers do the same. You desire to grow in the faith spiritually, but you're not doing anything to really accomplish it. And in the end, that's, that's counterproductive. It's like just leaving the eggs out on the counter and not doing anything with them. Mature thinking results from serious action, reading God's word, seeking to dwell on it, living it out. This will result in spiritual maturity after time. And this is what Paul sought, and this is what he was calling these Philippian believers to do, and this is what God is calling you to do as his follower. So that you're not only growing, but in the end, you will also come alongside others and help them mature and grow in order to have a successful spiritual growth and discipleship, every church needs mature believers. People who take their faith seriously and long for Christ to know him and be like him constantly. And I know this church. I know that, that there are wonderful mature believers here. And mature believers are, on, are, are seeking to do develop and, and create more mature believers as the Holy Spirit works. This is how God has designed the church. But whenever you're looking for a good church, people ask me who move away or who are going to visit uh, another church and they're looking for churches, oftentimes it's, uh, you know, students who are going off to college, they'll say, well, what do I look for in a church? And the first thing I ask, the first thing I tell them is when you go there, look to see if there are mature believers there. I mean, the worship style is important in some regard and, and what they eat in the potlucks, I suppose, but it's not about what the pastor wears it's do they teach God's word and are there mature believers there? Because that's a healthy church. The most valuable thing to your maturity in Christ is to surround yourself with other mature believers. To grow spiritually and to be able to disciple and disciple others, it takes mature thinking. Now Paul continues, the second facet Biblical discipleship and spiritual growth is this, a teachable heart. A teachable heart. Paul continues, and he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. It's not debatable. This This is how you ought to think. And then verse 15, he continues, he says, and if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And I appreciate this. Because Paul has just said, okay, the mature believer, let those of us who are mature think this way, and it's not debatable. And if people are truly seeking to grow spiritually, then God will show them that this is the way they ought to think. It's not up for discussion on how best to mature in Christ. Mature believers think this way because it is what God expects and desires. And if any who don't think this way and don't think that they are important. God, over time, as they look to scriptures, as they spend time with mature believers, God will show them the areas where they need to grow up, to think this way. And he's speaking very frankly, but he's not rebuking these people. he's not rebuking those who haven't quite come to that conclusions or practicing it in their own life, because he understands that within any church there's going to be those who need to mature in their thinking, in their lifestyles. It's, it's the reality of it. Every church, we're all, every church is made up of sinners who need to grow. In fact, this is, this is not a rebuke. He's expressing hopeful confidence that God will work within these people, that God will work within the church. As mature believers continue to live out your faith and your walk with him, God will use your life and his word to impact them so that others around you will also start to think that way in a mature way. But in order to grow spiritually, you must have a teachable heart. You must be willing to learn. You must be willing to go to God's word and say, okay, I'm holding it up as a mirror to myself, and how do I look? Or you look at somebody else's life in a good way, and you see how they're different than you. They're patient, they're kind, they're generous, their marriage is a little bit different than yours. Whatever it might be. And you say, you know what? I, need to, I want to be more like that because they look to be a little bit more like Christ than I am. And I need to be willing to humble myself and be teachable because God desires of this, of me. Paul says the Lord will reveal it to you. The Lord will reveal it to you when you are not thinking mature in a way spiritual. The word mature, reveal in the Greek means to uncover or to unveil something. It's often used to describe truth that God revealed through a prophet or apostle in scripture and that's how he does it today he reveals such thinking through the teachings of the apostles and the prophets God's word that's how he reveals it like I said it is a mirror for us and as a believer you have the Holy Spirit within you that will bring about conviction as you read his word and are teachable but such maturity takes a teachable heart Because even if God were to speak directly to you and say, this is where you need to grow, if you don't have a teachable heart, you're still not going to do it. It makes me think of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where he said, listen, the the rich man dies, and he didn't believe, and he says, go back to my family and tell them that, that they need to believe. And Jacob says, no, no, they have God's word. That should be enough. And he says, no, no, if you send someone back from the dead, they'll believe. And he says, it won't. If they're not teachable and they don't believe God's word, then they won't even believe if someone comes back from the dead. God's word is sufficient. It is the words of the apostles and prophets, and you have the Holy Spirit, so a teachable heart is what is necessary to mature spiritually. To always evaluate, am I doing things God's way? Am I, am I being a godly husband? Am I, am I being a godly father? Am I, am I doing the right thing? Am I being a godly son or daughter? Am I doing what God wants me to? And you're never going to get to a point in your spiritual life where you don't need to be teachable. In fact, the mature are often the ones most willing to be teachable because they've looked at their lives in the mirror of God's word and they are constantly seeing areas where they just don't match up. It's the immature who have the hardest time being teachable. They think they have it together, they don't think it's as important. They think that they know it all. One of the foundational facets of spiritual growth and discipleship is a willing and teachable heart. You must always be willing to learn from God's word and to learn from others in godliness. Without this, you won't grow. You won't be able to be discipled, and you won't certainly won't be discipling others, or you shouldn't be anyway. Are you teachable? Do you have a heart that longs to be shaped like clay from the great creator, the potter who is molding our lives into the image of Christ? If you do, then Paul affirms, if this is your heart, then God will reveal to you the areas where you need to mature. That's what he says. Let those of you who mature think this way, and if anything, if you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. If you're teachable, then God will show you where you need to grow up. And that sounds like a rebuke, but for those who desire to know God and love him, that's that's good news. That's good news. I want to be shown in my life through conviction where I need to grow. That's the character of those who long to be like Christ. Thirdly, Paul continues the third facet of spiritual maturity and discipleship is living out what you've learned. Living out what you've learned. Verse 16. Paul continues and he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Only let us, true, let us hold true to what we have attained. Being teachable is of very little value if you don't practice what you've just learned. A truly teachable heart will be eager to practice what you've just learned. And it can be difficult. It can be difficult at times. We all understand when the Lord is is convicting you and teaching you an area where you need to grow. There's maybe an area in your life that you've kind of been holding back and you kind of know about, or maybe you don't, but you just don't want to give it over to Christ. You don't want to surrender it. That can be hard. But you're not going to grow until you do that. If you will mature, If you will grow, you must be mature and teachable, and then you must put into practice the biblical truths which you've been taught. The Greek hold true literally means to live up to or to walk according to. It was used as a military term to describe soldiers marching in rank together, in order. Marching in formation. And you as a believer are to continue down this path of disciplined righteousness, doing the very best to to march in order according to Christ. Not as a burden, but because you found in life that that's the very best way. And so you keep progressing in your spiritual growth through the work of the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you. And this is done by holding true to living up to the things you've learned, to practicing them. To practicing them. What does it mean to hold true? What does it mean to attain to the spiritual life in Christ? What does he mean, hold true to what you've attained? It's holding true to your spiritual life in Christ, where it first began. That's what you've obtained. And how did you obtain spiritual life in Christ? By acknowledging your sin and repenting of it, by forsaking it and, and placing your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, by recognizing that you don't earn your way to heaven, but it's by faith you in Christ who died on the cross for your sins and saying lord you are lord of my life i give you everything everything that lied behind what i was living for what i was putting confidence in that's done i give you every aspect of my life and this is not just some decision that you made one day and are done with too many preaching and preachers make it seem that way you go forward at summer camp or you you just come forward and you give your life to christ and that's it i did that one day No, maturing in Christ, being a mature believer, a a believer who's growing in righteousness, following Jesus himself, Jesus himself says, this is an everyday decision. It's not a decision you made one day. It's a decision you make every day when you wake up. If anybody would follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus says. It's an everyday decision. What does that mean? It's every day waking up and living out what you've learned in God's word and from others. Paul says this is what he does. See, he's not placing some sort of uh, standard that he himself wasn't living in. And he says, look, I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect yet. I have my shortcomings, but I desire to get rid of them. And so every day I wake up and I press on towards that goal of perfection until finally when I, he calls me home and I die, I see him face to face and then he'll conform me. But until then, I'm always working to grow in him. And the mature in Christ will think this way also. Now living out, which you've learned, seems simple enough, but we all know that's oftentimes the hardest thing. In fact, it's not too far-fetched to say that Most of our sin happens because we fail to practice what we know. You know you shouldn't think such things, and yet you do them. You know you shouldn't say such a thing, and yet you do it. You know you shouldn't look at certain things and let your mind wander in a certain way, and yet you do it. Paul says to be mature means to practice what you've learned, to hold on to what you've attained In fact, this is the clearest and most tangible way to measure spiritual maturity. Are you learning? Are you growing? How? Well, you're practicing what you know. And it's not to earn your way into heaven. It's not to appear righteous before others. It's because you understand the value of becoming like Christ. It's a humility. It's not a boasting. It's easy to know a lot about the Bible and what it teaches. It's hard to apply it and live it out. It's easy to read the Bible, it's hard to live it out, and yet that's how we mature. Those are the ingredients in the process which God has designed through the Holy Spirit to mature us into righteousness and godly believers. I mean, living out what you've learned can be hard, it can even be awkward at times, but the more you do it and the more you practice it, the more natural and easier it becomes over time. It makes me think of, uh, I'm, you know, we're staying at my parents' house who live in the area. It makes me think of when my mom taught me to ride my bike. You may remember that. I remember being out in the front, and I, I, at that time now, I think I've seen the bike, and it was teeny. But in my memory, the bike seemed like huge, you know, like I was on this Harley of a bicycle. My mom would run behind me, holding me, giving me momentum, and, I, and I'd, I'd be trying to go, and then she'd let me go, and I'd keep my balance for a little bit, but then I'd fall. And she said, okay, James, what you have to do is you have to pedal. you got to keep pedaling. You know, and so at first it was kinda hard to keep my feet on the pedals to keep me going, and so you know, she would she would run behind me and do it. But after a little bit, I was able to get farther and farther and farther because I was pedaling more and then I'd crash and there were some bumps along the way. But over time, as I as I practiced what my mom was telling me and what my dad would show me, and I did it more and more, pretty soon I didn't need my mom to push me from behind because I could get my own momentum and keeping my feet on the pedals wasn't so hard. I could just do it and it became natural. And there were other things about bike riding. People do all sorts of crazy things with bike riding. At first, there's no way I could ride with no hands on the handlebar. I might dare myself to go down to our cul-de-sac and have one hand off, hoping my mom wouldn't see. But as I got older, I was able to ride around with no hands and, and those type of things. As you put into practice what you've learned, it can be hard. It can be awkward at first. There's bumps along the way. But as you do it more, you start to see not only growth and benefit, but it becomes more natural. And it's the same spiritually. The more you dedicate to practice what you've learned and do it purposefully, it's hard at first, but over time, you start to see that it's easier. Because Christ said that that if we love him, we'll obey his commands, and his commandments are not what? Burdensome. They're not meant to weigh us down. They're, They're meant to bring us life and joy and peace. The more you live out what you've learned, the more you will bear the fruit of the Spirit because he's working through you and it's a tangible way to see your spiritual growth. Here are the words of Hebrews 5.12. We don't have time to turn there this morning. But, but the author of Hebrews is writing about the same principle. About people who are growing and people who are not growing in the way they should be. He's writing. This is Hebrews 5.12-13. through 13. You would write it down and, and look it up later. But he writes this. You see, there's this expectation that you as a believer will be growing in maturity. Yes, when you first become a believer, you're going you're gonna to thrive and live off of milk, just like little babies thrive and grow and live off milk as a child. But as they grow, there's this expectation that they're going to start eating solid foods. And if they don't, they're, they're, they're going to be stunted in their growth. There's something wrong with that. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you guys are old enough now to, to be on solid foods, and yet I'm, I'm having to get behind the bike and push you and teach you all over again what it means to ride a bike. You need to take this seriously and start practicing what you know. He says, how do you mature? He says, the solid food is mature, and how do they become mature? Because of constant practice to distinguish good from evil, to live out what they've learned Maybe you're challenged to grow spiritually this morning and you, you desire it. Well, I, I challenge you. Okay, are you taking serious to put into practice what you've learned? Maybe you don't know how. So write down, write down some of the sermon notes from Pastor Joe, what you're learning in Bible studies or, or with that person you meet with, and say, okay, what does this mean to me this week? How can I take this and do it this week? I guarantee you if you do this and you do it purposefully, you will see spiritual growth and maturity because that's what God's word says you will become skilled in the word of righteousness fourthly facet of biblical maturity and discipleship is mentoring others discipling other people and now we kind of come to the aspect of biblical discipleship because you might be thinking well this is this is you've entitled the message building blocks of discipleship but You've been talking about me and my heart and, and growing spiritually, and it's good, but where does discipleship come in? Well, it, it comes in here. Paul pulls it all together. He says, to disciple and be discipled, it takes these things first. You're not going to be able to disciple others or be discipled if you're not mature in your thinking and you don't have a teachable heart and you're not living out what you've learned. You won't be able to disciple others, and, and you won't be willing to be discipled. Now, this doesn't mean you have it down to perfection because Paul himself says, I, I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained these things, but my goal is such. It's the attitude of the heart that stirs up. And when it is within you, and when there's a, a willingness to think mature and, and have a teachable heart and then live what you've learned, that's where true discipleship takes place. But it's not going to happen on its own. It takes purposeful action on your part. Discipleship within a church takes a willingness for you to disciple others and for you to be discipled. It won't happen by itself. Verse 17, Paul continues. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me. What he's doing is mentoring them. Follow my example is what he says. Follow my example. And in the Greek, this is a command. It's an imperative. Do what I do. Now first... It might seem a little prideful, like he's got it together. And sometimes we might give a little bit of slack to an Apostle Paul because he's, well, the Apostle Paul. But, but I think few of you in here would be hard. You're not going to walk around and say, hey, listen, you guys need to imitate me, my walk. Follow me. I got this. This isn't what Paul is necessarily reflecting. Paul's not boasting as if he was perfect. Like I said, he's already said he's not perfect. But he did know that he was a little more mature than a number of them in the church. And he was coming alongside them and says, follow my example. But his example wasn't himself. In writing the same thing, the same principle to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, the example is Christ. And so he says, join in imitating me as I try to imitate Christ. Christ is a standard in becoming like Christ. That's what we're striving for. And God has designed the church so that we help one another to do this. Becoming like Christ was Paul's chief goal. And so naturally, a compliment to this is his other desire was to see other people become like Christ. Because that brought Christ's glory as well. And so through this, when he says Brothers, join in imitating me. We see this principle that we are not only to imitate Christ, but we are to call on others to imitate ourselves. And that's a little scary. But it's what God has designed for the church. You might be thinking, well, how do I disciple people? I don't, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. And what if they ask me something that, that uh, I don't know? Or what if they see me on a bad day and they see just how much of a, a wretched sinner I am? I mean, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. I understand what that's like. Well, when you disciple someone else, they're not expecting you to be perfect, or at least they shouldn't be, and if they are, what you need to do is disciple them to show them that that's that's not who you are, that the example isn't you, the example is Christ, and you mentor them by showing that you are trying to become like Christ. You have young believers in your home or newer believers in your home, have them over for dinner, spend time with them, just read the Bible together and talk about the truths which you're talking about. Meet somebody of of the same maturity level as you and talk about the truths of Scripture and as iron sharpens iron, sharpen one another, but be willing to to take initiative. This is what Paul does. This is what Christ did, and this is what you are called to as well. And by the way, parents, God has provided you a, a whole group of reprobates to start with, or young believers, depending on how old they are. But if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have ample opportunity to start discipling the young ones who need to know what it means to take Christ seriously and live it in your life. And they're going to know that you're not perfect. They're going to know you make mistakes. But then it's how you respond to those mistakes, which can also exemplify Christ-likeness as well. It's not the pastor's job to show your kids what it means to be like Christ. I mean, that's part of it, but it's primarily your job as parents and grandparents what if they ask me questions I don't know? Well, that's okay, so then be teachable. And you say, I don't know, but I'll go learn. And one thing you'll find is the best way to grow and to learn is to, to be teaching others, to be forced to teach others. So I remember one time I, I was teaching at, while I was in seminary. I was on a mission trip to South Africa, and I was asked to teach um, at a seminary there for a couple weeks, and they gave me a couple topics, and so I had been studying it, and then like A day and a half before we got there, they said, James, there's been a change in the schedule. And so now you're not going to be teaching through Isaiah. We need you to teach beginning and second year Hebrew. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Like I had had Hebrew, right? But I'm not like some Hebrew scholar where I'm like going to teach Hebrew. But I'm like, okay, Lord, you are in control. It's not a surprise to you. And I, I know Hebrew a little bit. But what do you think I did for the next day and a half? People are out doing something. I'm like, you know what? Um, I'll be back. And I was in my study. I, you know, They had a first and second year textbook that I was using, and I was studying it, and I was putting it into practice, and I was soaking it in. And so I'd teach a class, and i do okay. And then right when I got back, I didn't hang out with all the other teachers at first. I went right back into my room. And for that whole first week, I was soaking it in, reminding myself of the truths that I had learned a year and a half ago and, and what it means. And, and if you've ever seen Hebrew, it's like weird. It's backwards. And Hebrew is what made me start drinking coffee in my life. It is. It is. right? But having to teach others to stand up and and give them knowledge made me have to study so that I could teach. And and that's what will happen in your life. If you're willing to mentor and disciple someone else, it will drive you to live a more righteous life. It will drive you to know Christ more. It will drive you to be more like Christ and live for Him because you're not only accountable to Him, you're you're trying to teach someone else. And the more I did it, by the way, the more I I felt I could do it. It was a little less challenging, but, but it made me desire to do it. Seek to disciple someone. And if you're a new believer, seek to be discipled. And not just if you're a new believer, but any believer. And this is the fifth and final point. Seek to be mentored. Biblical maturity, spiritual growth, these foundations are to, to think Think mature. Be, be a mature spiritual thinker and be teachable in your heart. Live out what you've learned and, and seek others to teach and disciple, but also seek others out who can teach you as well. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how strong you are a Christian. We all understand there's always something we can learn from somebody else. This is what Paul says. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And he's speaking to them all, mature and immature believer-like. Keep your eyes fixed on those who are mature, who walk according to Christ. Paul was quick to point out here, he wasn't like the only person they could follow. They had these type of believers within their church, and you have them as well. There are other mature believers who you can follow, whose example should be followed. And he says, fix your eyes on them as they walk according to Christ. It's not to elevate them to a, a place that they don't deserve. They're just people, but you you see their life, and you say, you know, I want to be more like that. I'm, I'm going to fix my eyes on the habits I want to grow in. I want to know the Bible like them. I want to have a marriage like theirs. I want to parent like them. I want to be kind and patient and generous like them, because they're more like Christ in this area than I am, and I know it, and I, I want to follow their example. And Paul says, keep your eyes on such a person. In the Greek, that... that, that Word "keep your eyes on" it means a strongly fixed gaze, as if the like like the gaze of an archer who's aiming at a bullseye. It's it's, you know moving, getting rid of all distractions, and fixing your eyes so that you can hit the target. No matter how long you've been a believer, there's areas you can learn. We understand that. And discipleship it takes two. It can be done in more, but it takes two. It takes somebody willing to disciple, and it also takes somebody who is seeking to be discipled. And I can guarantee you that if there's somebody willing to disciple, it's hard to chase people down. After a while, when you say, I want to meet with you, I want to meet with you, but they flake out and they don't come pretty soon, they stop. And then on the other hand, if there's somebody who wants to be discipled, it's really hard for them not to. If you keep calling them and keep saying, hey, let's meet for coffee. Hey, can you come over? Hey, can I come over? Hey, let's hang out. Pretty soon, you're going to do so. It's, it's a two-way street, a willingness to mentor and seeking someone else to be mentored. And you might be thinking, James, well, am I supposed to disciple or am I supposed to be discipled? And the answer is clear, both, both. Both are necessary for discipleship to be successful in the church. Those who are discipling others, they're also reading books and hearing sermons or spending time with elders or other people, honing their own lives as well. In this short passage, Paul gives us some very clear and practical instruction on what it means to mature spiritually and help others as well. This is what biblical discipleship within a church looks like. Mature thinking, a teachable heart, doing the best to live out what you've learned, seeking others to to, to help counsel and bring along towards Christ, and also a willingness to, to seek others to help you become more like Christ. This is what it looks like in any church, in any country, in any language. This is God's design. Does this define you? Do these attitudes define your family and your attitude? Be encouraged by this, but be challenged by it as well. And be reminded that we serve a loving and gracious God and a perfect loving Savior who calls on us to go to him every day, to be like him, because in him and in him alone is not only spiritual life, but hope and joy and peace. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might have all that we need for life and for godliness. Lord, you tell us that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, it is by it we live, for we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. I pray that these truths would nourish our souls. I pray that all who have heard it would receive your word with gladness and apply it to their lives in a way pleasing to you. Above all, I pray, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, show us the areas we need to grow, and give us the strength and a willingness to help others grow as we seek to be like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.